0: It is a prime ingredient feeding the fires of imagination. In eons past, it fanned flames ignited by a primeval author chiseling random petroglyphs across a dim cave wall. This life-giving breeze once grew papyrus for paper and dried vibrant oils brushed over canvas. Carried across the land since the dawn of time, it once breathed life into dinosaurs and has since walked on the surface of the moon. Manifesting as a gentle zephyr, it stirs memories of childhood or as a raging vortex ripping up the pages of history. Powered by this influence, we dream, love, laugh, hate and destroy. In short, live out our lives. A gust of this tempest carries the power to scatter fog surrounding the unknown. Drifting through frequencies of time and space, thin air is inhaled for the first time. And exhaled at the last. Don't try to catch your breath. Welcome to a place that's about as far off the beaten path as someone can travel. Here, On a desolate stretch of shoreline in the Canary Islands lies a sad remnant of times gone by. By chance or by design, a man by the name of Tate Addison has ventured to this out-of-the-way place and will soon come face to face with destiny, said destiny being the smashed wreckage of a historic ocean liner. She has sailed under many guises. SS America, USS West Point, Australias and so on. Today, she is a beached shipwreck known as the SS American Star, broken in half by a relentless tide and now left stranded as a testament to the inevitable fate of all things sculpted by the hand of man. Mr. Addison doesn't know it yet, but he is about to become a passenger on this once great ship and then by proxy aboard all manner of transport throughout space and time. One too many drinks and a few misplaced steps in the wrong direction are about to cause this man and you to be caught in a relentless current and pulled kicking and screaming into thin air. It was late one afternoon on October the 27th, 2004, that I found myself standing alone on a beach in Fuerteventura in the Canary Islands. The air was tepid and stank of decay, said odor no doubt emulating from the subject of my gaze the great hulking shipwreck of the SS American Star, abandoned and run aground on a sandbar here nearly 10 years prior to my visit. It was never my goal nor my ambition to lay eyes on the fatally wounded relic. In fact, it was a few too many drinks at the local bar and the company of said local bartender who mentioned the derelict as being a fide point of interest during my visit to the island. And so, half in earnest interest, half in a drunken stupor, I allowed myself to be transported by jeep across a singularly bleak tract of land to wind up here, watching the angry surf pound against the port side of this rusted hull, effectively launching columns of ocean spray high into the air through portholes lining the starboard. That the framework had managed to withstand this kind of relentless buffeting for so long was truly a tribute to the shipbuilders, I thought. In the midst of my reverie, I was at once dismayed to observe that several of the broken-out windows on the ship's bridge now glowed yellow-orange in the gathering darkness. Seconds later, a brilliant white point of light pulsed like a strobe high atop the corroded central mast. Who, or what, could possibly be over there? I'd been forewarned by the bartender that a short swim out could prove potentially fatal between the rusted shards of the broken ship and the violent undertow of the waves swirling beneath it. A stout metal catwalk had been haphazardly welded to the starboard hull, potentially granting access to the upper decks, but there was no way in hell I would attempt boarding in my current partially inebriated condition. Adding to the strange vista unfolding before me, I observed an ominous vortex-like storm cloud roping down above the star's second funnel, like some kind of connecting conduit, at one point enveloping the stack completely, encasing it in a kind of thick, revolving fog. It was this strange anomaly that seemed to unnerve me the most. Never in my life have I seen such an unusual atmospheric occurrence. Several times I have witnessed the formation of a tornado wispy tendrils of moisture reaching out like a gnarled finger to the ground, dancing wildly across the landscape, uprooting everything unfortunate enough to be in the damage path. This was different. The cloud wasn't churning with destructive velocity. Instead, the rotating vapor simply connected with the funnel, wrapping around it all the way down to the deck. This strange phenomenon single-handedly evoked enough curiosity This superseded my primal dread, and coaxed me out into the pounding surf, farther, perhaps, than I should have ever ventured. Now the shipwreck towered above me, its bleak rusted outline blotting out the fading sunset far out to sea. Terror, the likes of which I had never experienced, started welling up inside my head, grinding against the beginnings of a wicked hangover that was now starting to set in. Crest after crest of advancing waves struck me square in the chest, spraying cold salt water up into my face and jolting me back to the surreal circumstance I found myself in. Oddly, the receding tide between the surges seemed to be drawing me onward, teasing me along on an unstable wash of churning sand and seashells. Realizing that I was now beyond waist deep in the water, and having a great deal of difficulty finding solid footing I turned away from the ship and started working my way back in the direction of the beach. As I inched my way along in the violently churning foam, a powerful wave struck the other side of the shipwreck, forcing a surge of water out through the broken portals that in turn launched above me like a barrage of cannon fire. The water slapped down directly in front of me with fearsome force, effectively dislodging the shifting sand under my feet and sending me careening away from the shore sliding down into deep water, and on a collision course, with a lethal debris field, around the underbelly of the wreck. Efforts to return to shore now obviously impossible. I turned what was left of my panicked attention to finding some way to catch hold of a broken superstructure, before I could be dragged by the undertow, across the sunken death trap ahead, or potentially worse, out to sea, injured, and with no hope of rescue. In the few seconds I had to determine a course of action, I spotted two narrow I-beams that rose up from the surface of the water like rusted twin pillars, single-handedly supporting all that was left of the aft portion of the broken liner. As the current picked up speed and pulled me along, I reached out from the crest of the wave and caught hold of one of the beams, holding fast to it with all my strength. As soon as I had a solid grip, I shimmied up the beam and out of reach of the swirling tide and a mangled wreckage below. For a few timeless moments, I simply clung to the beam and closed my eyes, unwilling to accept the frightening predicament I was in. A twinge of pain from my ankle forced me to open my eyes and revealed that I hadn't escaped certain death unscathed. A jagged wound ran down the side of my right leg, from just below the knee to the top of my foot. If any part of this circumstance could be considered fortunate, the cut wasn't deep and the degree of blood loss didn't seem all that dire, at least not comparatively to the predicament. Deciding that it was now time to assess the situation and the full impact it presented, I took a look around. About fifty feet away to my right was the broken wall of the ship's interior. Torn pieces of once elegant staterooms, mangled corridors leading forward into rotting, waterlogged abandon, and all the remains from a long ago splendor. Apparently, when the American star ran aground here, the surf didn't take long to literally rip the ship in half. The F section sank beneath the waves after only a few short years, leaving everything from the engine room forward to stand here like a broken sentinel. Sadly, in my current situation, there was no way to reach the cracked surface of the bow without throwing myself back into the water and I had no desire to take that plunge. Glancing around in opposite directions, I saw nothing but open ocean beyond the starboard, nothing but taller and even more menacing surf, smashing against the broken hull and spraying across my precarious perch, making it slippery and damp. Whatever I was going to do, I needed to do it soon. Over my left shoulder was the shoreline of Forte Ventura. So close, and so inviting, that it nearly lured me to take a swan dive off the beam and swim for it. Judging by the pounding I had taken to get here, that would be a deadly mistake as well. And so, I looked up. The beam that I was clinging to rose dizzily high up into the overhanging superstructure of broken pipes, twisted metal, and what was left of a crushed elevator shaft. The stark realization that this was my only possible path to safety filled me with such gut-wrenching trepidation that I shut my eyes again for fear of becoming too dizzy and losing my grip. Somehow, in some way, I was going to have to muster the courage to climb the full length of this beam to the very top and then hope that there would be some kind of sufficient handhold or solid footing to stand up on there. Don't look up, just climb, I said aloud. And then once you get up there, whatever you do, don't look down. Hell, don't look, just climb is my final resolve. Slowly, cautiously, with arms tightly wrapped around the beam, I started my ascent. All around me as I climbed were the eerie, echoing cries of seagulls perched somewhere inside the dead hulk, mocking me for my folly trying to survive. Joining the choir of seagulls and roaring waves were the strange creaking sounds of broken wood and metal sloshing around inside cavernous rooms, and the metal against metal scraping and clanking from chains and destroyed machines. As I made my way higher, blustering wind tugged at my damp clothes and whipped through my hair, strong enough to make me clutch the I-beam so hard that my elbows and shoulders throbbed with pain nearly fifteen minutes later I felt something brush against the top of my head that made me cease inching my way up the beam. Risking a peek through barely raised eyelids, I saw that I had reached the highest point of the climb, a juncture at which my metal pillar was bolted to a thick iron plate attached to the underside of one of the top decks. Realizing that the beam had now run its course, I assessed my immediate surroundings once again. The twisted sheet metal that remained from the breakup of the stern reached out on all sides of me like grungy, imposing blades, intentionally placed in my path by a sadistically wicked game master, bent on seeing me fail in my effort to survive. Of all the potential pathways I could choose to climb free of my perch, only one presented what I would consider viable, and that just barely. One of the corroded metal plates curled out to form a horizontal platform about four feet away from where I hung suspended over the hellish debris field below. I was going to have to jump across the distance to make it up to the top of this plate. One wrong move and it would all be over, plummeting more than 90 feet down the distance I had just descended into a proverbial bed of rusted nails under violently churning water. Taking several deep breaths, I tried to compose myself as much as possible before letting go of my decaying lifeline. Summoning all the strength I could muster, I pushed off the beam with both legs and launched myself in the direction of the makeshift platform. Fortunately, all of my attention was intently focused on grabbing hold of the metal lip I was diving toward. I never really noticed the sickening height and a wide open expanse below me as I floated across the distance and struck home with a loud reverberating clank. Now, as a general rule, sheet metal is not entirely rigid. Large panels can, in fact, be extremely pliable. Throw exposure to the elements into the mix and now you have a recipe for disaster. As soon as my head and chest hit the surface of the plate, I wrapped my fingers around both sides and held on for dear life. The metal was coarse and gritty but dry high enough on the ship that the ocean spray was not coating it with slick moisture. While I did have a firm grip on the platform, I was altogether alarmed by the fact that my impact had caused the plate to bend down to a nearly vertical position and it was now wobbling wildly back and forth on whatever piece of the ship it was still attached to. Feeling the edges of the plate cutting into the palms of my hands, I wasted no time pulling myself hand over hand up to the top of the broken platform and then using my last ounce of energy, lunged over the edge of the opening to land with a thud across the splintered wooden deck. Sprawled across a seemingly stable surface, I allowed myself to slip into a momentary semi-conscious state, long enough at least to gain back some scrap of my composure and resolve. Collapsed on the rotted deck, I opened my eyes fully and gazed up into the ominous boiling storm clouds rolling by overhead. Flickering electrical discharges danced within them accompanied by low rumbles of distant thunder. The wind up here on the top of the shipwreck was far more blustery than it was below and produced a ghostly choir of eerie howling voices that streamed through the broken cracks and crevices all around the deck. Glancing to my left, I realized that my view of the sky was partially obstructed by the looming rounded shell of American Star's massive stack, stained and rusted by years of exposure to the wind and rain and by unrelenting torture from the sea. Now that I was only a few short yards away, I could clearly see that the vortex extended down from the sky and fully enveloped the metal cylinder, revolving almost imperceptibly around its base and spanning the entire width of the ship tiny glowing tendrils of St. Elmo's fire flickered and danced beneath the transparent cloud and streamed along the chipped paint, dented metal, and rusted rivets, creating the illusion that this tenuous conduit from the sky was somehow imparting restorative current that might just bring this long-dead leviathan back to life. Realizing that my proximity to this unpredictable phenomenon could be raising the bar on a life-threatening scale already close to tipping. I struggled to my feet and took several steps back in the opposite direction. A sudden twinge of pain from my leg reminded me of the cut sustained earlier and also served to stir me to full recognition that this was no time to be standing around sightseeing. Turning to face the bow of the ship, I took several cautious steps over to a short flight of stairs leading down to the bridge deck and carefully descended them. In the dim, gathering twilight, I was actually disappointed to find that the bizarre lights I had seen from the beach no longer illuminated the control room. Now, all I could make out through the crumpled doorframe were vague, abstract shapes, bits and pieces that remained after vandals had ravaged the wreck when she grounded in 1994. While waiting for my eyes to adjust to the dim light filtering in from the broken windows lining the front face of the bridge, I suddenly realized that I'd been carrying a cigarette lighter in the pocket of my shorts. God knows I could have used a smoke. Sadly, the cigarettes were completely saturated and worthless. Fortunately, I found the lighter tucked tightly into the clear plastic cellophane of the pack and pulled it free. Striking the flint. A bright orange flame flared on top and thankfully cast sufficient illumination to step inside. The bridge had been completely ransacked. No ship's wheel, no engine room telegraphs or communication devices of any kind, only piles of broken furniture, discarded here from other locations throughout the ship. Circular holes cut in the rancid, mold caked green carpeting provided the only hint that this was once the control center of a great ocean liner. Shining my tiny torch around the vacant room I saw no indication of flood lamps or any other kind of lighting device that might have explained what I had seen up here while standing on the beach. Perhaps I reasoned it was merely an alcohol induced hallucination or some kind of reflection from the setting sun though I saw nothing in the scattered refuse with any kind of reflective qualities whatsoever. Considering the extent of the devastation left behind by looters, vandals, and the unending battle she waged with the relentless elements, the Bridge of the American Star did still possess one shining quality that even time and torture had not robbed her of. In the deep cobalt blue twilight that was flooding in through the broken vista of windows across her bow. I could see twinkling starlight poking through occasional breaks in the rolling clouds and the moonlit hills of Ventura, far out beyond the pounding surf. Giving my thumb a rest, I let the lighter flicker out and just stood there for a long, timeless moment. The view was the most spectacular I think I've ever seen. In the back of my mind, I had been hopeful I would find some kind of generator or a string of light bulbs here. That I could drag out on deck and use to signal someone for help. Even if there had been, I couldn't locate a solitary soul out there on land that I could have signaled to. That same feeling of foreboding ratcheted up another notch when I realized that there would be no one coming to my rescue. No boats in sight, no surfers riding powerful nighttime tubes, no campers, parties, or clam bakes on the beach. A chill coursed through my body and caused the hairs to stand up on the back of my neck. I literally had no idea what to do next. Even the seagulls seemed to have abandoned me, or perhaps it all bedded down for the night. Regardless, the waves were still rhythmically, methodically slamming the hull, in time with emotionless banshee cries from the wind. Might as well just keep moving, I thought. All kinds of crazy schemes were bolting around inside my head as I descended the rusted stairs leading out toward the broken bow. Plenty of long metal pipes and rods, I told myself. Maybe I could take one of the longest ones down to the port side ladder and use it to pull vault over the debris and the deadly undercurrent. Once again logic intervened. Yeah, madness. The deck leading up to the sharply rounded bow was littered with all kinds of discarded hardware. Most notably and oddly pristine considering the surroundings was one of the giant bronze screws or ship propellers that had been removed and lashed to the deck for transport. If I remember anything from my drunken discussion with the bartender, the American Star was supposed to be towed to some place in Thailand where it would have been restored and turned into a five star floating hotel. The screws were removed prior to the voyage to reduce friction and make her easier to control. The ship broke free and was set adrift to end up here, beached and broken in half. Further examination of the bow revealed heavy anchor chains and long, randomly strewn lengths of thick rope, further evidence of the failed towing attempt. The rope could potentially provide a method by which I might safely climb back down to the waterline, but then what to do once I'm down there? Standing out on the edge of the deck, and clinging to a broken piece of handrail, I happened to glance down at the beach near the spot where this whole crazy nightmare started. I could still make out the jeep tracks in the sand and something else. There was a man standing down there, looking up at the wreck. Hey! I cried out, waving my arms wildly over my head. Up here! Sadly, the distant, silhouetted figure didn't seem to notice me at all, but rather must have been fixated, much as I had been, on the bizarre oddity of the ship itself. I watched him for a moment as he walked slowly down the edge of the breaking waves. No! I cried out. Don't come any closer! You'll be dragged out into the surf! Paying no heed, the figure started wading into the water, his attention still seemingly focused entirely on the ship. Seeing that this man was potentially my only savior and wanting to keep him from making the same foolhardy mistake that I had, I bolted from the edge of the railing and started climbing back over the littered deck, searching in the darkness for the quickest path below, some place where he might be able to see me or hear me. As I sprinted past the open door leading into the bridge, I noticed a dim, flickering light within, but I was so focused on finding some place I could broadcast that I didn't so much as pause to investigate. Several dilapidated staircases later, I found myself descending to the promenade deck, an eerily long passageway lined with rectangular window frames, gloomy, yet at least illuminated enough by ambient light to see ahead. As with the rest of the ship, Rotting floorboards and rusted metal prevailed everywhere and gave me cause to slow my pace, not wanting to crash through a weak support and plummet to a lower deck or perhaps fall all the way down to the water below. As I made my way down the corridor, I remember seeing a ladder from my vantage point on the beach that had been welded to the side of the ship, granting access to what would be close to my current position. Momentarily throwing caution to the wind, I sprinted along the edge of the deck until I located the top rung. The moon had gone behind the clouds, and I could no longer make out the form of the man I had seen from the bow. Hello! I shouted. Anyone! Please! I'm stranded up here! Send help! Coast guard or helicopter! Help! Nothing but the endless crashing surf against the hull and cascading over the deserted span of beach that might as well have been on the other side of the world. In a panic, I climbed over the window frame and lowered myself down the ladder. The rungs were caked with rust, and the rough texture scraped at my palms as I hurried to the bottom, perhaps to the closest vantage point for anyone who might be within earshot. Help! I repeated. Help me! After five or ten minutes, I finally resigned myself that my potential rescuer was already gone. Hanging my head in defeat, I draped my arms over one of the steps, letting the rhythmic waves wash over my feet and lap up around my ankles. The feeling was calming until a twinge of pain reminded me that salt water in an open wound hurts quite a bit. As tempting as it might have been to just simply give up and let go, I took a deep breath and scaled the ladder back up to the promenade. As if placed there especially for me, I noticed an old tattered armchair in the middle of the hall, apparently left behind or deemed unworthy of salvage by the looters who had all but gutted the American star of her treasures. Stinking of mildew and yet still surprisingly comfortable, I turned the chair to face outside and parked myself there, grateful for some time to rest. I must have nodded off for a while because the next thing I remember was waking up in the same exact position, only now the surroundings were very different. This has to be a dream, I told myself, rubbing my eyes to wipe away what I decided was an elaborate hallucination. I watched a flood of tiny electrical arcs, like the ones topside on the deck, dancing around the windows of the promenade, across the floor, and even up to the moth-eaten arms and backrests of my chair. As these bolts of electricity coursed across everything in sight, they left in their wake a pristine surface on every facade they came into contact with, as if somehow restoring all the paint, wood, and fabric to a state before they had been ruined by years of neglect. Leaping to my feet, the vision vanished in a flash and I was once again surrounded by dismal ruination. Wishful thinking, I told myself. Still just a passenger on a dead shipwreck after all. Angrily, I kicked the dilapidated chair across the hallway, causing it to smash and splinter against a set of double doors leading into the darkness what was left of the lower decks. Seeing that access to a portion of the ship, as yet unexplored, had conveniently presented itself, I decided that I might as well go ahead and have a look. Sighing, I muttered, What have I got to lose? Striking the lighter, I used my free hand to pull one of the once elegant doors grudgingly to one side. With a labored screech and hinges grinding, the door finally gave way with a loud snap as one of the weathered hinge pins broke off and caused the heavy door to crash against the door frame. Honey, I'm home, I shouted sarcastically. My voice echoed back at me from what must be a very large, empty space inside. Holding the lighter in front of me, I started fumbling my way into the darkness, scattered gravel-like pebbles of what was once an intricate parquet floor crunched under my flip-flops as I stepped between a pair of crumbling pillars and out from under a second-floor balcony that ran parallel on both sides of this once-impressive room. To my right, closest to the bow of the ship, was the remnant of a raised stage, inset into the forward wall, and divided off by what was left of a curtain track in the ceiling. There was no mistaking that in her glory days the American star must have been an absolute wonder, a no-expense-spared tribute to the decadence of the era. At least, I thought, no one had been so bold as to say that even God could not sink this ship, as had been said of the Titanic. As it was with the promenade deck, muted streams of ambient light from outside bathed the room in a strange, luminescent blue, in turn casting long shadows from the sparse bits and pieces of decor left behind in the looting. As I passed close to the front face of one of the pillars, I noticed that someone had carelessly spray-painted Great Lounge across the inner surface, perhaps an architect labeling rooms for future renovation, or just a considerate graffiti artist mapping out a tour of his or her masterwork. Either way, I assumed that I now found myself standing in the midst of the most imposing room on board. Sadly, no big band sounds cascading from the stage, no tickling ivories, and most certainly no suave crooner belting out beyond the sea to the enchanted guests. Now, the evening's entertainment consisted of howling wind wafting in through the battered port side windows, with bizarre accompaniment from the metronome breakers that pummeled the wreck like clockwork every 10 seconds or so. Off in the distance beyond the broken windows I noticed several indistinct flashes of lightning inside the clouds, way out on the horizon. Not long afterwards, a strong gust of cool wind blew through the room, picking up particles of dirt and broken flooring, and scattering them like sand in a grungy cloud that whipped around me and scraped at my exposed face, arms, and legs. Of course, the wind also effectively snuffed out my lighter. So there I stood waiting in the oppressive darkness for the draft to subside with my eyes tightly shut, half to protect them from flying granules, and half due to the overwhelming sense of isolation that I couldn't push far from my thoughts. Compounded by the chill wind, the towering empty room, and now the very real possibility of a storm pushing its way toward Ventura, hopelessness welled up inside me like a cup about to overflow. I had no desire to be caught in this shipwreck with massive storm surges crashing across every deck and washing all in the unfortunate wake to certain demise. For a moment, I contemplated sprinting across the room and taking a swan dive out the window, ending this waking nightmare for good and all, and of course, on my own terms. Then something caught my attention. Thankfully, enough of a distraction that it jarred my train of thought away from doing myself in. The wind had subsided enough that I could once again open my eyes. There, on the floor at my feet, uncovered by a gust and now shining up at me like nothing else on this wretched boat, was a pristine silver coin, gleaming almost as if it had been newly minted yesterday. Bending down, I quickly snatched up the coin, struck my lighter, and held it up to the light for close examination. The engravings were clearly of Indian, or perhaps Asian origin, Delicate swirls following concentric curves around the outer rim, surrounding some unidentifiable profile of a man etched into the center. Flipping it over, I observed what looked like twin spires between a pair of crossed swords that in turn were covered by a coat of arms in the middle of the coin. Feeling for all the world like a great detective uncovering a vital clue, I rolled the coin over and over in my palm trying to divine how or why this little bauble had ended up in this most unlikely place. Lucky toss from a tourist sailing by, perhaps? I may never know. With no way to translate the symbols in my current predicament, I decided to pocket the trinket for now, having gained a newly found sense of curiosity, and perhaps driving me onward to find a way out. Toward the back of the lounge I saw that there was a hallway continuing out to what was probably a row of staterooms. Picking up my pace, I ventured away from the uncomfortably vast empty room and down the corridor in the direction of the missing stern. Needless to say, I didn't get far. After passing by an open stairwell and walking only a short distance on, I inevitably came out to the broken end of the hull, overlooking the open ocean and the very same I-beam I had used to gain access to the top deck. The view from this side was no less terrifying. Perhaps even more so, considering that I was at the end of a hallway leading nowhere. The notion that more than half of the ship had split away and long since sank beneath the waves was unnerving to say the least. A sickening wave of acrophobia racked my brain as I looked up to the altitude I had scaled to reach some piece of the ship that I could cling to. Sure, the climb had saved me from drowning, but then, for what, I asked myself. Several more hours of wandering around a ghost ship until I either go mad or decide to jump off. The entire scene was spinning wildly, so much so that I had to brace myself against the intact corridor wall and slide down to the floor, waiting in tortured disorientation for the dizziness to pass. Crawling back on hands and knees, I retreated from the broken edge of the passageway and back up to the perceived safety of the stairwell with its solid iron railing and seemingly unbroken stairs that led both up to where I had started or down deeper into the lower decks. After nearly retching at the thought of heading back up to the summit of the ship and the dangers that implied, I decided to go lower, apparently down to A deck, as posted on the landing ahead with a tarnished metal arrow pointing down a second flight of stairs. Thankful that this was a reasonably new lighter that I had picked up in a shop after arriving on the island, I once again raised my tiny torch and started down. I think the stairwell must have bypassed at least two other decks en route, considering that I rounded at least four flights of stairs before coming out on a deck. The air was musty down here and stank of rot. Odd unsettling noises were much more pronounced in these lower recesses as well. Sloshing water and the creaking metal bulkhead reverberated all around me coupled with other unseen noisemakers that made me even more uneasy than I was up in the dry expanse of the Great Lounge. Now I felt like I was surrounded by the ocean on all sides. In the flickering gloom of my lighter, I passed by row after row of stateroom doors, some still closed and locked, others torn from their hinges revealing empty, ransacked lodgings within. The floor seemed to sag underfoot, an alarming sensation that may have been nothing more than the result of the saturated carpeting. Still, my mind reeled at the thought that at any moment the floor might give way, sending me down to my watery doom. After what seemed an uncomfortably long journey down the corridor, I was relieved to see that it opened out into yet another relatively large space that appeared to be the remnant of a once-lavish restaurant. My suspicions were confirmed by yet another dingy bronze plaque on the wall declaring this to be all that remained of the Pacific Dining Room. Across the back wall to my left, I had the uncomfortable realization that there was a gaping hole in the starboard hull, and that sea spray from the crashing waves was easily penetrating the walls and floor around the opening with slippery moisture. Keeping a safe distance, I walked across the high vaulted room, around several poles bolted to the floor that were once upright supports of dining tables. Still feeling uncomfortably close to the waves that wallowed into the room, I crossed the remaining distance to the connecting foyer and headed further toward the bow. Once the opulent entryway to the Pacific dining room, the foyer opened out into a much wider hallway that led around two broken elevator doors, staircases, staff offices, a barber shop, and past what must have been a dance hall of sorts on the starboard side and a cinema to port, complete with shredded silver screen and row after row of floor brackets that used to be bolted to now-missing theater seats. Still below deck, the area would have been black as pitch if not for my trusty lighter. At least I felt more at ease for the moment, now that the flooring seemed stable, further removed and far enough above the waterline. At the end of the hall, there was another grand staircase leading either up or down, at which point a fork in the passageway granted access even further forward. As I rounded the corner of the right fork past the stairs, I became aware of a low churning sound coupled with a distinct vibration in the floor. From where I was standing, I could see that the corridor continued around what appeared to be a square or rectangular wall that must have been some kind of shaft running vertically inside the hull. Cargo hatch, perhaps? Following the hallway completely around the wall, I confirmed that this was, in fact, a self-contained and apparently inaccessible shaft leading far down into storage areas on the lower decks. The low rumbling and vibrations continued as I took one more walk around all four walls of this curious chamber. As I rounded the corner nearest the starboard bow, a substantial surge of water bubbled up through a rusted hole in the floorboards and out a ragged crease running several inches up the hatch wall. How I hadn't noticed the opening before I have no idea, other than the lack of any light save my tiny butane candle. Kneeling down, I peered through the twisted shards of rusty metal and couldn't believe what I saw on the other side. From this vantage point, I had a bird's eye view of sea deck two floors further down and completely submerged. There, Beneath the murky water that sloshed violently around inside the vertical cargo shaft was an automobile. I imagine that the ship had been constructed to carry cars, especially for first class passengers that would want their own brand of transportation to tool around in once they got where they were going. This car, however, was like nothing I'd ever seen before. First of all, the condition of the car appeared to be almost brand new, like the shiny coin I found upstairs if not for the numerous dents and scratches it had received, free-floating inside the shattered cargo hold. The cabin of the vehicle was pretty standard, hard top with four doors and two rows of bench seats behind a glass windshield and windows. Oddly, that's where the similarities ended. The car was bobbing like a top, banging against the hatch and rocking back and forth in the waves. A brilliant flash of lightning momentarily lit up the chamber and for a split second, I could plainly see that this car had no wheels. I suppose the wheels or tires could have broken off, though I saw no evidence of wheel wells either. In place of where the tires should have extended beneath the chassis were a set of strange coils that seemed to be housed inside transparent plexiglass spheres. The curved contours of the fenders and quarter panels were unfamiliar too, at least no make or model I could identify, As I sat there completely transfixed, I was suddenly alarmed to see a torrential waterfall pour into the hatch from the upper deck, obscuring my view of the car and sending another barrage of water bursting through the floorboards, hitting me square in the face and soaking me to the core. Lurching back, I smacked my head on a corroded pipe elbow and then retreated to the railing of the grand staircase to try to regain my senses, standing there wringing out my shirt I saw that not only was water pouring into the cargo hold, it was now gushing down the staircase like flood water, making this particular escape route completely impassable. It was at that very moment that I understood what was happening. The squall that I had noticed far out to sea had arrived, and was now hurling waves taller than the ship, crashing them over the deck and sending copious streams of water down every topside opening. Moment of truth, I told myself. With nowhere else to go, I waited for the stream that was coursing down the stairwell to subside, at least enough to walk against the current, and then I started up. Surely, descending to a lower deck was a pathway to grounding, and I wasn't ready to give in that easily now. After all I'd been through, it really pissed me off that the gods were stepping up their game. I managed to make it up to the promenade deck before another towering wave slammed against the starboard side. As a tsunami cascade of water crashed all around me, I held fast to anything firmly bolted down and fought my way back in the direction of the bridge. Torrents of water poured across the deck beneath my feet, and buckets of ocean spray rained down from overhead, threatening to send me careening over the rail. On hands and knees, I gripped each of the rusted metal steps and crawled up the last flight leading back to the perceived safety of the enclosed bridge. Returning to the open deck, I was given an unflinchingly horrific vista of the oncoming waves lined up to batter the ship. Looking for all the world like rising mountains of water, each crest seemed as though it packed enough of a devastating blow to easily wash anything and everything off the port side lightning flashed and crackled around the ragged sky followed by menacing claps of gunshot thunder. The wind was now propelling driving rain in gale force gusts that screamed and howled like a detuned pipe organ as it coursed through the broken debris littering the deck. I managed to reach the top of the stairs and had just secured a good grip on the doorframe to the bridge when yet another towering wave slammed the star. Unfortunately, the bridge offered very little in the way of protection. If anything, the broken rows of windows only served to concentrate the oncoming water into violent columns that effectively threw me around inside the room like a rag doll. As water drained away in the fleeting seconds before the next wave, I coughed out a mouthful of salt water and tried to catch my breath. No choice now, I thought. I'm really just prolonging the inevitable. I put up a good fight. But now it was time to face facts. There literally is no place else to go. Resigned that my fate was finally sealed, I calmly stood up and positioned myself in the unprotected doorway and crossed my arms defiantly. Closing my eyes, I held my breath and waited for what seemed an unusually long, timeless moment for the next wave to mercifully carry me away. And waited. And still waited, until finally I could hold my breath no longer. Exhaling with a loud gasp, I realized as I fought to catch my breath that my respiration was now the only sound I could hear. Everything else, the wind, the waves, the labored groaning of the old shipwreck had suddenly fallen completely silent. Overwhelmed by panic and fear, I knew at some point I needed to open my eyes and take a long hard look at what condition my condition was in. So, I did. Now I'm a pretty down-to-earth guy. I'm not given to those wildly contradicting tall tales you read about in the tabloids. UFOs, Sasquatch, and the Loch Ness Monster. Ghosts and witches, parallel planes of existence. That said, there was no logical explanation for what I saw when I opened my eyes. For a moment, I surmised that I was probably already dead. And what I was seeing was nothing more than a few random brain cells firing off a farewell as my body drifted lifelessly out to sea. I even pinched myself to see if I still felt something. I did. The view didn't fade to black. No cloaked figure carrying a scythe. Just the deck of the American Star with a fifty foot crest of a wave frozen in midair and suspended high overhead. Raindrops caught in mid-descent popped and scattered like tiny bubbles in zero gravity as I bumped into them, stepping out from underneath the doorframe. Momentarily amused, I flicked several of the tiny rivulets with my index finger and watched them scatter in all directions. Deciding that these actions were potentially the subtle indications of incoherent madness, I turned my attention back to the looming wave. There was motion up there. Not forward motion, but rather a slight, liquid undulation along the leading edge of the crest. Oddly, it gave the impression of a wild animal, poised above me on a cliff, and ready to strike. There was no explanation for it, and certainly no telling how long the situation would remain stable. Fighting an urge to run cowering back down to a lower deck, I cautiously ascended to the highest point, the deck upon which the giant funnel rested, and as before, to the point where the ship and sky remain connected by a strange cylindrical cloud bank surrounding the stack like a sinuous pipeline leading to the Vault of Heaven. There was slight motion here too. Still gliding in a slow motion spiral, the cloud revolved in awe-inspiring grandeur, alive with cavorting electromagnetic current that now illuminated the broken stack like a Las Vegas marquee unaccustomed to the glare that was anything but commonplace in the lifeless reaches of the wreck, I squinted and waited for my eyes to adjust. As I gradually became accustomed to the glare, several inexplicable details became evident that I hadn't noticed before. Now, I could clearly distinguish strange vaporous openings in the cloud, wispy apertures that dotted the fluctuating surface, spinning in time with a rotation around American Star's funnel and clearly defined by what I would characterize as non-conductive dead zones, devoid of electricity. The openings weren't dark and inactive, but rather like circular portals of vapor, absent of what I'm calling St. Elmo's Fire. Framed within these apertures, like peering through a room full of smokers at a picture show, were scenes of other places, vague shadows and obscure landscapes that drifted in and out of focus as they rotated around the stack, one after the other. One of the openings even appeared as a reverse image, a photographic negative of people walking back and forth across a crowded city street. Then it dawned on me. These were openings, some kind of metaphysical gateways leading out to elsewhere. In other words, a method of escape from my personal brand of solitary confinement. I suppose it would have been prudent for me to carefully examine each of the possible destinations presented before leaping, but seriously, any one of them seemed to hold the immediate promise of salvation, and believe me, I wasn't looking back. Half jokingly, I pulled the silver coin from my pocket and flipped it. To the gods of fate. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. The coin landed in my palm face up. Gripping it tightly in my clenched fist, I lunged forward, headlong into the mist. What else can they do to me? I asked myself, laughed down from a lofty summit as my head slams against the stack, still stranded and with a shiny new concussion. Thankfully, that's not what happened. For a brief instant, I passed through a layer of glowing ether, through solid metal, and into the interior of the colossal stack. Glancing down, I could see all the way through to the bottom, far back down to the crushing waves that had now resumed their assault on the shipwreck. Then, without any further objection or discussion, I was gone. Poof. Into thin air. Tate Edison will reemerge sometime in the future, I promise. Not in his own future, perhaps, but in an upcoming episode of Thin Air, nonetheless. Meanwhile, inhale deeply and relax. There's plenty of breathing room now before the next program. Until then, may the wind be always at your back. It has a nasty habit of sneaking up on you that way. <laughs> Episode 2 of the Thin Air podcast anthology The Passenger chapter 1 Starcrossed was written produced directed narrated and told by RJ Lonsdale Music compositions used in this episode include Mysterious City Echoes in Time by Kevin McLeod, licensed under creative commons by attribution 3.0 Wake up in the dark by CAOG Music and Star-Crossed by Mark W. Wood of Wood Media Studio, Incorporated. This has been an R.J. Lonsdale Flyby Studios presentation.